Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Page 550, a Jew whose whole being has become godly. Not only he's invested his heart, his natural instincts, not only has he invested his mind, but he has invested his being has become godly. His whole subconscious has become godly. He has sublimated, thank you so much, he's sublimated his whole being to godly. This is the world of emanation. Then his reward is, if he does the mitzvah, and his connection to God is like, it's like so innate, it's so, it's so connected, it's like in, naturally connected. It's like two halves. When you become a half to God, that you're nothing without God, your whole being is godly. It's so natural, it's so, it's pleasurable. When you invest your pleasure in godliness, when you sub, sublimated your pleasure, this is your pleasure, godliness becomes so natural. It becomes your whole being. Then, you experience, your reward is that you experience godliness via the way God channels himself and reveals himself through the world of emanation, through the spiritual world, the godly world, the world of unity, where you experience, you become one with God. You completely transcend. There is no ego. There's no separation. There's no ego. You are one with God, inseparable from God, just like the body and the soul are inseparable. The body and the soul, the connection between the body and the soul, it's not like you understand the concept. You and, and what you understand are two separate things. The body and the soul become one, become inseparable. So when you become like a chariot to God, the patriarchs, the matriarchs, Moses, King David, the great tzaddikim, they become the one or two in every generation, they become like chariots to God. They become inseparable from God, like God's body. So their reward is they experience godliness in a different level. They experience godliness. It's not an intellectual experience, a detached intellectual experience. It's not even a passionate, overheated emotional experience. It's something much deeper, much more profound. It's pure pleasure. Their whole being becomes godly, inseparable from God. No separation, no ego whatsoever. They become one with God. So what you invested, the mitzvah is what you get back. How you perform the mitzvah, that's exactly how you are going to experience godliness. Okay, let's learn page 550. The reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. The reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. Unlike wages paid to a laborer, for example, which are no index of the nature of the work performed, the reward for a mitzvah, i.e. the revelation of godliness experienced by the soul that performed the mitzvah. Exactly. When you get paid, you get paid money. The money is no reflection I don't know what kind of work you've done. Just know you've gotten money. More money, less money. But there's no connection between the reward and the work. The work generates money. But what kind of work? Many works will all generate money, the same money. When it comes to a mitzvah, the mission is telling us the reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. Because from the reward, that's why from the reward I can tell the origin of the reward. The mitzvah. What kind of mitzvah you've done? How you've done the mitzvah? 
from the level of the soul, after 120 years, where the soul is parked after 120 years, I can tell you the mitzvah, the origin, the cause of the reward, how we did the mitzvah. Uh, the revelation of godliness experienced by the soul that performed the mitzvah is actually the fruit of the mitzvah itself. The revelation consists of a ray of the godly light emitted by the mitzvah. So the reward comes from the mitzvah because the mitzvah is divine. But in order to experience that divine, to achieve a ray of that divine that the soul can absorb and could, del- and could receive pleasure, then that depends on the energy how you've done the mitzvah. That's what he's going to explain. When you do the mitzvah without any intent, it's like a body without a soul. The body you have. The divine you have. Every mitzvah is divine. Whether you have intent or you don't have intent. The deed is done. The the, the good deed is done. The divine you have. But there's no energy. There's no ray. There's no radiation. There's there's nothing that radiates. It doesn't spawn anything. There are no dividends. But from the... When you do a mitzvah, and you do it with energy, you invest yourself into the mitzvah. You invest your whole personal subjective energy, your heart, your mind, your, your personality, your being. Then the mitzvah spawns, the mitzvah, there's dividends, it radiates, it gives off in a mitzvah light. What kind of light? How do you experience that light? How God channels himself? That depends on what type of energy you've invested in the mitzvah, depending on the different levels of energy within a person. You have little smaller energies, your instinctive nature, your emotional nature, you have your deeper energies, your intellectual nature, and then you have even deeper, your spiritual nature. So it depends, it depends what level God engaged you. What level God reached you and touched you and connected with you. Someone said, he said, the difference between Hasidus, the first generation of Hasidim, they were all rebels. They all ran away from their homes and they became Hasidim. So when he came back to town, the, the, his teacher asked him, what did, why did you run away? Why did you learn in Mizrich? I didn't teach you. He says, we went through the entire Talmud in our yeshiva. What possibly could you have learned more by the Magid of Mizrich that I didn't teach you? He says, you know what the difference is? By you, I went through the entire Talmud. But in Mizrich, I learned, I was taught how the entire Talmud should go through me. That's a a whole different thing. It's one thing, you're learning Torah. You're detached and learning Torah. But is the Torah learning you? Has the Torah affected you? Did the Torah move you? Did it inspire you? Did it touch you? Did it change you? Did it it move you one iota? Or are you just learning knowledge? It's very interesting, objective and detached knowledge. Very nice. I'm a nice scholar. It's, It's interesting. It's stimulating. But it has no connection to me. So if God doesn't touch you, then, then, then you're not touched by God either. It's commensurate. As the Alter Rebbe once said, there are souls are in heaven for hundreds of years and don't know anything about godliness. Because their entire life, God never touched them. They learned Torah. They did mitzvot. But God never touched them. Never budged them one iota. So they're in heaven. And, and they weren't touched by God. And God is not touching them. It's mutual. They, but when you do a mitzvah, you study Hasidus, and you do a mitzvah, and you allow the mitzvah to touch you, it goes through you. It moves you, it changes you, it inspires you, it shakes you up a little. Then, after 120 years, measure for measure, then you experience godliness. <clears throat> then you, you are touched by godliness.
you allow God to touch you, so God allows you to touch God. He reveals himself to you. And you experience something of godliness. How it's channeled, what level you experience, how God manifests itself, that depends on what you, you brought to the table. How you allowed God to touch you. If you only allowed God to touch you naturally and instinctively, as a Jew, you're naturally instinctively connected to God, and you reveal that, you reveal that. So God touched you somewhat. Because you had, to, you, had, you had to be touched to overcome your natural inclinations and to overcome all the temptations and to overcome all the distractions all around us. Like you said earlier, we learned earlier, you had to be touched. You had to allow yourself to be touched. So if you allow God to touch you, then after 120 years, you will be touched by God. You will experience the emotional level of God, so to speak. If you allowed God to touch you deeper than that, you allowed God to reach your mind, and to really, really open yourself up to God and really open your mind and really have, achieve a clarity and a, and a deep understanding of godliness, which evokes a very deep level of emotion. If you allow God to touch you on a deeper level, then after 120 years, God will, will touch you. you will, you'll be touched by God. And your soul will experience delight after delight, pleasure after pleasure, which is all a result of all the mitzvot that you've done. And if you've, those rear tzaddikim who allow God to touch them, transform their entire being, sublimate their entire pleasure, their entire nature, subconscious, their whole being has become godly. They've become inseparable and one with God. Then they will be touched by God completely. Their soul will enter in the world of Atzillus, in the world of emanation. But the Talmud says that fortunate is the soul that comes to heaven, but he comes with baggage. He comes with Talmud, with learning. Because all of this divine delight is a result of the mitzvah and the Torah that you've studied. If you come to heaven empty-handed, there's no Torah in your bags. You come with your suitcases, and the suitcases are empty. Because you never studied the mission in your life. You never studied the page of Talmud in your life. You never studied the 613 mitzvot. You never studied Torah. You never studied Torah. You come to heaven empty. Nothing, nothing we can do. There's nothing to generate light. The principle, that's the Torah. That's the mitzvah. That's the principle. Every page of Talmud that you learn, every mitzvah that you learn, every, every bit of Torah that you learn, every mitzvah that you do, that's the principle. That's the divine. All the meditation in the world won't generate a thing. One, one iota. The only thing that generates the principle, that's what's divine, is the actual Torah and the actual mitzvah. So you must come, you have to have baggage. You have to come with your suitcases fully loaded. But when you come with your suitcases fully loaded, but you, not only you study the Torah, but the Torah studied you. Not only you went through the, the Talmud, the entire Talmud, the entire Talmud went through you, and you allowed yourself to be moved and touched by godliness. And your reward will be that, that God will touch you. And the soul experiences pleasure and delight and continues to go from strength to strength every single day, climbs, keeps on ascending and growing higher and a new delight and a new pleasure and a new horizon and a new discovery. And, and it just, it's just endless. It's infinite. God is infinite. And the levels that the soul can grow every single day and three times a day, in the morning, afternoon, and evening, it's a constant, constant stimulating Constant stimulation, constant growth and experience. But it all depends on what the soul 
how the soul receives godliness. However you receive godliness, that's exactly how godliness is going to be channeled to you. If all you've lived is on the emotional, instinctual level, then that's the only level you'll achieve, except on Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, and a holiday, when every soul gets an upgrade. Every soul, the world of formation, gets an upgrade and experiences, gets a glimpse of a deeper dimension, of the intellectual dimension. And then you have the souls who, who experience godliness on a higher level. They experience godliness in intellectual, intellectual. They live in the higher world. They reside in the higher level of Ganeden, in the pure bliss and pure pleasure of the higher level of Ganeden, the Garden of Eden. And then, of course, those rare souls who reside in the world of Attilas, in the world of emanation, which is the divine world and the world of unity. This means that we can know the essential nature and rank of the mitzvah by its reward, by the nature of the light generated by the mitzvah, and revealed to the soul as its reward. Now, we will not concern ourselves with explaining hidden matters, meaning the great tzaddikim who are at the level of a chariot, whose divine service comes under the heading of hidden matters because it transcends understanding, but only with those matters revealed to us to which every man must aspire, <coughs> i.e. only with those levels of divine service which may and ought to be attained by every Jew as follows. So One, he's not going to dwell on the world of emanation, on the level of the service of Hashem, of the highest tzaddikim, because it's totally beyond our comprehension. We don't understand this level. We don't understand that level of service that level of connection, completely egoless, a sense of state of complete egolessness, no sense of self. It's beyond our comprehension. We can't even, we can't even, it's beyond our, our box. We can't even think, can't even grasp it. We don't even know what it means. So we're not going to dwell in it. It's enough for us to know that it exists, that there is such a level. There is a pure divine world and there are souls who are tuned into that level experience that level. And their whole Judaism is experiential. They experience godliness. They breathe godliness. It's as natural to them as materialism is natural to us. That's how natural godliness is to them. Could you imagine? It's hard for us to imagine. As much as people have a, a, a passion, as much as people are running to Las Vegas and to this, can you imagine someone running to shore with that same energy and enthusiasm? It's hard for us to imagine. But there are such Jews... That's their pleasure. People are running to sin and to indulge, and their tzaddikim will have even greater pleasure. All night, the night of Sukkot, he couldn't wait to bless the lulav and to, to bless with the lulav and the esrog. All year he's been waiting for the lulav and the esrog. He got so excited, he didn't even notice that the esrog was sitting behind a glass door. He didn't see it's glass, so he stuck his hand in smashed the glass. His hand was all cut up and bleeding, but he was so excited about the mitzvah, he was completely oblivious. He didn't even realize that he cut himself. And he broke the glass. And he's taking the lulav, and he's in ecstasy, and he's making the blessing. His shamash comes in, and the gabe comes in, and he sees the poor rabbi sitting and bleeding. He didn't even notice. Could you, could you imagine any material pleasure to be so absorbed in your pleasures, to be so absorbed in your ecstasy, that you're clueless of... We can't even begin, we can't even imagine such a level of pleasure. So it's hard, we know we're talking about a level that's totally beyond our comprehension, what it means to become so one with God, to be so ecstatic about Godliness, and to be so natural and so experiential that there's no separation. 
it's beyond our comprehension, but it's enough for us to know that something like this exists. There is such a level. There are, there are Jews like that. There are people like that. One or two in a generation. There's an Abraham, there's an Isaac, there's a Jacob, there's a Moses, there's a Rebbe. There are such Jews. As difficult as it is for us to comprehend, but at least we should know that there is such a, there is such a reality. So that's the world of Atzillus. So he's not going to dwell on this. We, it's not our concern with things that are hidden, that are totally beyond us. But what is of our concern is, continue. One must know with certainty that the essential nature and rank of divine service, with fear and love revealed in the heart, derived from understanding and knowledge of the greatness of the blessed Ein soul, and of which it was said earlier that the reward for divine service motivated by such love and fear is on the level of the world of Berea, from this reward we know that its place, i.e. the level of such service, of mitzvah performed with such motivation, is in the ten sferot of Berea. And the service motivated by natural fear and love, hidden in one's mind, not emotions experienced in the heart, but mental awareness of one's inborn love and fear of Hashem, of which it was said earlier that such service is rewarded in the world of Yetzirah. From this reward we know that its place is in the tenth spherot of Yetzirah. This is not the full-blown emotions. We actually feel the tremor in your heart and you feel a palpable love for God or a palpable sense of awe of God's presence in the presence of the king. No, you don't feel that. It's more like an intellectual. You know it in your mind. You know instinctively every Jew believes in God and we know instinctively that there is a, an attraction, a connection to God, and instinctively we know there's an awe, a fear. We're afraid the Jew is not going to do certain things because, hey, you know, God, how can I defy God? How can I go against Hashem? But that's a natural instinctive. So from this I know that where is the mitzvah? In order for, in order for the soul to experience this level, the reward, which is a, a radiation, a ray, which is a glimmer and a ray from the mitzvah itself. From this I know, where is the mitzvah? The mitzvah is in the world of Yitzhira. The mitzvah has reached, has been elevated. Through your energy, the mitzvah has been elevated, has united with the world of Yitzhira, with the ten sefirot, with the God, divine emanation of the world of formation. And therefore, God manifests himself through the prism of the world of emotions. And therefore, the soul experiences godliness as its reward um, experiences an emotional, an emotional experience of godliness. If the soul ends up in the higher level of the Garden of Eden and it experiences a deep understanding of godliness, which, which leads one to develop a, a deep love for God, a palpable love, that tells me that the soul, the mitzvah itself, has been elevated and has become united with the ten divine emanations of the world of creation. So God manifests himself and he experiences through the prism of, of the intellect. Versus if he does the mitzvah with complete egolessness and experiences the mitzvah with his whole being, then the mitzvah of that tzaddik, of that rear tzaddik, is elevated and becomes one with the ten divine emanations of the world of, of emanation. So from the reward, I can tell you where the mitzvah is. From the dividends, I can tell you where the mitzvot, how far, how high the mitzvot have reached, how elevated the mitzvot are. But divine service performed without arousing one's fear and love 
to a revealed state, even in one's mind, meaning that the service is done without arousing the natural love hidden in one's heart, so that it will emerge from the hidden recesses of the heart to be revealed at least in one's conscious mind and in the latency of his heart, so that it might evoke, if not passionate fervor, then at least a mental resolve to cleave to God by fulfilling the mitzvah. If instead the love remains hidden in the heart as in its native state, as it was before the divine service, when it was surely concealed, not expressing itself in divine service. If the love is similarly hidden when he engages in the divine service and the mitzvot that he does are in no way affected by the love. Every Jew has an innate, natural, inherent love for God. But if it remains hidden, on the conscious level, it remains completely hidden, and it doesn't motivate you to do the mitzvah. You don't invest it in the mitzvah. You have this potential, but you don't invest, you don't even tap in even, even a drop, you don't even tap into this energy or to this... It doesn't motivate you. It's not revealed. It remains completely hidden, completely concealed. So you just do the mitzvah, you just do the mitzvah out of rote. But there's no consciousness of godliness. There's no godly consciousness. There's no godly sense. Then the mitzvah remains flat. There's no energy. There's nothing to lift up the mitzvah. There's nothing that causes the mitzvah to soar. So the mitzvah remains flat. And its effect on you also remains flat. It has no effect on you. It doesn't refine you. It doesn't make you a better person. And that's why you find the most astonishing thing. How is it possible? It's really quite astonishing. How can a person do a mitzvah and it shouldn't affect you? If you do a mitzvah, it, it should burn you up. It should, it should transform you. It should, it should, you're doing something divine. You're doing something godly, something that's infinite. Every time you do a mitzvah, whether you're aware of it, whether you appreciate it or not, the fact is, you're doing something that's infinite, something that's divine. You're touching the divine. And yet, how could you remain totally indifferent, unchanged, unmoved, unrefined? Let alone, we're soon going to learn, you even have the possibility, the more mitzvot you do, the more arrogant you become. Not only don't you become closer to God, it actually leads you away, further away. It creates a distance. Because you become arrogant and proud of yourself and egotistical, you become impossible. The more Torah you learn, the more arrogant and ivory tower intellectual, the more distant you become. How is it possible? How can you be immersed in a godly lifestyle, in mitzvot, in Torah, and it has zero effect on you? Zero impact on you? Doesn't change you, doesn't inspire you, doesn't move you. You're not even thinking about God. A whole day and a whole night you're doing mitzvot. You're doing godly things. And not once, you can go through your whole life, you're not even thinking, you didn't even think about God for one moment. It's pretty amazing. How is it possible? You're married to God, and yet you're not even thinking for one moment about your spouse. You didn't, you didn't think one moment. You didn't invest one, one ounce of energy. You didn't think about the spouse. You didn't, Nothing. But, but, you, but you're doing, you're going about the motions, you're doing everything, but it's as if, it's as if the, the spouse doesn't exist. It's very strange. It's a very, if you think about it, it's very unnatural. You're observant. You're committed. You label yourself. You call yourself orthodox, which is the problem with all these labels. 
It has nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with godliness. It's just natural. It's just, I grew up this way. I'm conforming. Like most people conform. Most people by nature conform. 90% of people conform. It's the rear person who has the courage not to conform. So I grew up this way, so I, I'm just coasting along. And years can go by. You're praying. You're doing mitzvah. You're studying Torah. And you haven't even thought about God for one moment. It was a, uh, one of, again, the earlier generation of Hasidim, so there was this rebel. They were all rebels. So after running away to Mizrich, he comes home. He tried to avoid his former rabbi. It was uncomfortable. He knew his rabbi was upset. He was his prized student, and here he ran away. He was not satisfied. He was thirsty for some, something godly, for something deeper. And he ran to Mizrich, to the Magid. Anyway, once he bumps into him, as a little shtetl. He meets him in the middle of the street. He can't avoid him. His rabbi says, how are you? A long time to see. Tell me, tell me the truth. Why did you run away from me? I was, you were my prime student. I was so proud of you. What did you learn at Mizrich that I didn't teach you? He says, Rabbi, I'll tell you the truth. In Mizrich, I learned to be a mind reader. Really? So tell me what I'm thinking. So he closes his eyes. He says, you're thinking about God. He says, absolutely not. He says, that's why I left. <laughs> so you're studying Torah. That was the point. You're studying Torah. You're doing mitzvah. You're immersed in godly, divine things. And you're not even thinking about God for one moment. It's not about God. It's about me. A whole day. It's all about me. It's an ego trip. How can I perfect myself? And this is the language that you hear. It's very strange language. This is the language that you hear in certain circles. The mitzvot are programmed to perfect you. You don't hear a word about God. <laughs> you don't hear a word about godliness. All you hear about is me. I am going to become a perfect person. Me, myself, and I. Beginning, middle, and end. That's, that's what it's all about. Getting a share in the world to come. The eternal ego. At least when a person dies, the only good thing about dying is that you, your ego comes to an end. No, God forbid, my ego should come to an end. The eternal ego. It's going to continue forever and ever. You never stop thinking about me, even in the world. That's what Alter Rebbe said. Our souls were in heaven for hundreds of years, and they haven't tasted godliness. They don't even know what God looks like. Because it's an ego trip. Spirituality could be the ultimate ego trip. It's all about I. It never ends. It never stops. For one moment, the Torah, how brilliant I am. The mitzvot is to perfect me, to make me a better person, to perfect me. Stop for one second. Forget about yourself. Forget about your ego. Forget about your eye. For one moment, there's someone else in the world besides you. There's a God in this world. And you know, as a matter of fact, all there is is God. There's nothing else. <laughs> All there is is God. Not you. You don't even exist. All there really is is God. But you can go through your whole life and this thought never even entered your mind. Completely unaware of it. You're learning Torah. You're doing mitzvot. You're religious. You're orthodox. God? What does God have to do with anything? Or, what can God do for me? Lord, get me high. What can God do for me today? Instead of asking God, what can, I, what can I do for you? <laughs> what, can I do for, what can God do for me today? 
And this is the whole program, the whole Torah, the whole mitzvah is a program for my self-advancement, for my self-enrichment, for my perfection. Me, myself, and I, from beginning, middle to end, and doesn't end and doesn't stop. The Baal Shem Tov walked into the shul and he walked out. He was so disgusted. He said the shul is full, full with Torah, full with mitzvah. They thought he was complimenting them. He said, you don't understand. When you do a mitzvah with refinement, with a sense of godliness, with a conscious awareness of godliness, with a sense of connection, with an emotional sense, even an instinctual sense, how much more so an intellectual sense, how much more so a spiritual, experiential sense, then the mitzvah soars, the mitzvah is elevated, the mitzvah soars, the energy of the mitzvah, and you soar. You are refined, you are transformed, you are changed as a result of that experience, of that mitzvah. When you light the Shabbos candles, you're on fire. It's not the candle that's burning, you're burning. When you light the Hanukkah candles, you're on fire. When you pray, it's an experience. It's rejuvenating. It refreshes you. You become centered, focused, reconnected. But in this synagogue, he says, it's filled with Torah. Because the, the mitzvot are flat, the mitzvot are going nowhere. Because it's not a, no one is thinking about Hashem. Studying a lot of Torah, 18 hours a day, doing a lot of mitzvot, but there's no conscious connection of, uh, of, uh, for anything God. So then the mitzvot go nowhere. The mitzvot remain flat. <coughs> and they remain in this world of action. Such service remains below in this world of separation in the level called the externality of the world, as opposed to the sphirot, which are the internal aspect of the world. It has not the power to rise and to be absorbed in God's unity, meaning the ten holy sphirot, as is written in Tikkune Zohar, that without fear and love, it does not fly upward and it cannot rise to stand before God. It doesn't have the energy, it does not become unified with the ten sphirot, with godly, because there's, no, there's nothing godly there's no consciousness of anything godly in the mitzvah. So this is the power. This is our personal subjective power. Just like in one moment, you can build a world or you can destroy the world. If you admit and acknowledge God's reality, you affirm the world. If, God forbid, you deny God's reality, in one split second, you've sunk to the abyss. If in your mind you worship idols, in your mind you don't believe in God, then in one split second you've sunk your soul to the lowest abyss. If you admit God, you acknowledge God, you elevate your soul to the highest level. The same is true. If you're egotistical, and it's all about me, myself, and I, and on a conscious level there's zero connection to anything godly, then you've lowered your soul to the abyss. There's no, there's, no, there's no godliness. There's no revelation of godliness. It's hidden. It's concealed. It's there because the mitzvah is holy. The mitzvah itself is holy. But there's no conscious, there's no revelation of godliness. There's no energy. There's no life. It's like a body without a soul. Corpse. But if you do the mitzvah with, energy, with a, a conscious awareness of godliness, then the mitzvah could become united with godliness. Then you reveal the godly aspect of the mitzvah. Then the mitzvah shines. Otherwise, the mitzvah is like a diamond. The diamond is there. But if you don't polish the diamond, it's buried. 
It's it's dirt. It's together with the dirt. You don't see you don't see the difference. Well, if you polish the diamond, then the diamond sparkles. Then you reveal what's there. You reveal the potential of the mitzvah. So when you do the mitzvah with a sense of egolessness, and the more, the deeper the sense of egolessness, you invest in the mitzvah, whether it's natural, instinctive, whether it's emotional, it's intellectual, whether it's experiential, spiritual, the more the sense, the, more, the deeper, the more you invest the personal subjective, the more you invest yourself in the mitzvah, and you allow the mitzvah to touch you, and you open yourself up to the mitzvah. As the Kotzke Rebbe once asked his Hasidim, where is God? He said, everywhere. He says, no. You know what God is? Wherever you let him in. Of course God is everywhere. But you know where God is? Where you let him in. Then he's revealed. Otherwise God is hidden. He's a diamond, but no one sees and no one senses and no one feels and no one experiences. So what all the whole world is in our heart. We want godliness to be manifest in this world. The ultimate purpose, ultimately, is Mashiach. Mashiach is when godliness will be felt and experienced in this world, be manifest. God is here today. God is all over. But God is hidden. That's exile. That's not Mashiach. Mashiach is when godliness is felt and experienced. When you walk down the street and you feel godliness, you see openly the miracles, the divine providence, how God is creating the world each and every moment, that everything is godly, the miracle of existence itself. Everything is a miracle. Nature is a miracle. When you become sensitive to that, then when godliness is revealed, that's the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal that we're all working towards. All this 3,800 year of effort and sacrifice and Torah and mitzvot and sweat and blood and toil and hope and faith and joy and love, it's all for one purpose. To reveal that godliness should become manifest in this world. That's what God wanted. He wanted this physical, material world, earthy human beings, earthy world that we live in, the framework that we live in, he wanted this world to become a godly place, a garden of Eden, a place where godliness is felt and manifest and tangible and conscious. So it all depends on us. We are the heart of the world. The whole world is given to us. Each and every one of us is a microcosm of the whole world. If godliness is felt within us, we feel godliness and we sense godliness and we think about godliness. And we're inspired and moved by God, and as we open our hearts and allow God in, then God becomes manifest in the world as well. Otherwise, it remains hidden. A hidden treasure. It's a treasure. All the mitzvah that we're doing is a treasure. Even in that shul that they were sitting, they were sitting on a treasure. That's why the Bashamta was so disgusted. You're sitting on a treasure and you're such paupers. That, 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 that hurts more than anything. Imagine someone who's homeless starving to death, walking around in tatters, and he has a billion dollars in the bank. It's a hidden treasure. He has no access to it. He doesn't know how to write a withdrawal slip. And he's walking around. That, that's the biggest Rahmanas. Your whole life is immersed. You're religious, you're orthodox, all these labels that you give yourself. And yet, not a thought of godliness, not an, an, an iota of refinement, of egolessness, of genuineness, of authenticity, of reality. Everything is so superficial, artificial, external. It's pathetic. You're doing something divine, and yet you're not divine. On the contrary, the exact opposite of divine. Arrogant, selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, 
Spirituality could be the ultimate ego trip, the ultimate self-absorption. This is the most painful of all. That's the deepest exile. That the treasure is there, and yet you're blocked. You're not allowing any access. So it all depends on us. God gave it all up to us. Whatever we achieve in our own personal lives, that's reflected back in the macrocosm in the whole world. The more we reveal godliness in our life, the more we're conscious of godliness, the more we allow, our, our, the more we allow God into our hearts, into our minds, into our consciousness, the more we allow the Talmud to go through us, the Torah to go through us, touch us, affect us, move us, change us, inspire us, the more godliness will be manifest and revealed, and the more energy we have, and therefore the Torah will be elevated to a higher level, which ultimately will be manifest to the soul that generated this energy, to the soul that generated this elevation. That soul will benefit from all the mitzvot that that soul has generated, all that heartfelt mitzvot, those heartfelt prayers, that heartfelt charity and tzedakah, that genuine, authentic mitzvah. And ultimately, ultimately, it will lead to the transformation that the godliness will become manifest here and now in this world of ours, in this frame of reference, in this frame, of, in our framework, with this material, physical world, will be transformed and godliness will be manifest. That's the ultimate goal. But in order to achieve this goal, it's not enough just to do the mitzvah. We also have to do the mitzvah. We also need that personal touch, that personal relationship with God, that feeling of God, that consciousness of godliness, that thinking about that, opening yourself up to godliness. As explained at length further, love and fear are the wings of the one's divine service, lacking the wings. It cannot soar aloft. The Alter Rebbe now proceeds to amplify his previous statement. This inability of one's divine service to ascend to the Sirot applies not only where one's motive for engaging in Torah and mitzvahs is actually shilolishma, not for its own sake, meaning for some ulterior motive, heaven forbid, in which case one is actually serving himself, not God, and his service surely cannot ascend to stand before God. It also applies even if, as the verse describes it, their fear of me was like commands of man done by rope. Meaning that one serves God out of a habit acquired in his youth, having been trained and taught by his father and teacher to fear God and to serve him. But he does not really do it for its own sake. Okay, so he's bringing, he's quoting the verse from Yeshaya. Isaiah is complaining. <clears throat> Hashem is complaining that the Jews are, they're doing the right thing, but they're doing it out of habit, out of rote. It's mechanical. Uh, duty. Duty. It's like paying income taxes. You do what you have to, <laughs> and, you, and that's it. Don't pay a penny more, and you cut you cut corners, and you do whatever you need to. But there's no, there's no, there's no energy, there's no life, there's no excitement. As it says, the Navi says elsewhere, "Hanu They turned their back to me. So he says they turned to me with their back, meaning they have no interest. And that's the biggest insult of all. You're doing it, but you're doing it like oh, okay, half-hearted. Okay, it's a duty. That's how most people daven. That's how most people pray. It's like a duty. They rush through the prayers, top speed, 
you know, you, you can get it, you can get a speeding ticket, and you finish you finish your obligation, and that's it. You know, I've done my obligation. Next, I can check off the list. Okay, one burden off, one unpleasant obligation off the chart. I've done it today. Okay, next. So God says, you're turning to me. You're praying to me. You're talking to me. And you have no interest. That, that's more insulting than anything. And so he's talking about a child who was trained. For someone who grew up observant, you know, the Judaism was handed down from parent to child, from generation to generation. And it was trained in you. you as a child, you were trained. You had no understanding, no appreciation. The child is thinking about one thing, the candy that he's going to get at the end of the day, or the reward, or the trip, or the prize, or the... The child has no understanding of the preciousness. And, you know, a child doesn't study for studying's sake or doing it for its own sake. A child is doing it as a child for ulterior motives. There's nothing wrong. That's the way that we all are. That's the way children are. They can't think of anything else. Um, so the child is doing it, and it becomes a habit, something that you're trained. You're trained. Your parents teach you. This is the way a Jew behaves. A Jew lives a certain life. This is what we do. This is what Jews do. You keep Shabbat. You pray. You put on tefillin. You keep kosher. I mean, this is what you do. And you grow up that way, and that's it. And you just follow along. You coast along. Most people just coast along. So I don't have any negative intentions, but I don't have any positive intentions. Why am I doing this? What do you mean, why? I'm a Jew. I'm religious. I, I grew up this way. This is what I saw with my parents. This is what I saw with my grandparents. This, this is what I saw with my great-grandparents. We've been doing this for 3,800 years. I don't know any other way. This is my culture. This is my life. This is what I saw in yeshiva growing up. This is what I, I was educated. But there's no, there's no thought. You don't even have to think. It's like automatic. The child is trained and it just becomes second nature. So there's no sense, there's no conscious sense of anything. On the contrary, not to conform would take tremendous, tremendous energy. You know, someone said, he says, when he saw someone trying to talk to a Jew who wasn't yet observant, you know, when the Rebbe started the Mitzayim, the campaigns, trying to reach out to all Jews and getting them to do a mitzvah. So, so, so one religious Jew responded. He said, listen, it's bad enough. We have to do it. We have no choice. We grew up this way. Why, why impose? <laughs> he's having a good time. He's enjoying life. Why, why are you imposing upon him? And he's not even responsible because he doesn't know any better. Why are you, you going to make life? So you can imagine that's your view of Judaism. It's restrictions. <laughs> you have no choice. You grew up this way. Nebuch, I wish I can change. But listen, I don't have the courage. I don't have the guts, let's be honest, to change. I'm not going to suddenly throw away my family and throw away my community. And This is comfortable for me. This is what I grew up with. This is, this is what I know. This is familiar. So it doesn't take any great energy. It doesn't take any great courage. In the country, it would take tremendous energy, tremendous courage for me to break away. And I don't have that courage. So Nebuch, I have to, I'm stuck in this lifestyle. So Nebuch, I have to, uh, it's not so bad, you know, Jewish lifestyle, it's not so bad. You get, to, you get to sit with your family every Shabbat. Even, even if you just go do it mechanically and by rote, without any great... It, it's a lifestyle that works, which is very, and it's very rich and rewarding. Chicken soup every Friday night and, 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 and having the family eating together. And you know, most families never even see each other. And here, everyone's sitting together, and there's structure, and there are holidays, and it's colorful, and it's interesting, and it's stimulating. The Torah is very, very profound. So 
okay, it's not so bad, you know, not so bad for me to conform and to, to live this lifestyle. It's, but again, there's no, there's no energy and there's no enthusiasm and, and there's, no thought of, there's no thought behind it. It's, I'm a trained, I'm trained since child. So I started that way, just like as a child, I'm trained, so I'm trained. It's so deeply ingrained. Because children, whenever you train a child, that's why he says youth, whenever you train a child, it's so deep that it stays with you for the rest of your life. People who suffer from uh, Alzheimer's or, you know, they start losing their memory gradually. And after a while, they don't remember what happened yesterday. They don't remember what happened two days ago. The only memories they remember are from their childhood. Like languages, people have acquired languages. They revert to their original language. Like the people who grew up only speaking Yiddish. And they haven't spoken Yiddish in years. And then in the older years, they forget all the acquired languages over life. The French and the English. And they go back to their original and start speaking Yiddish again. The way they used to as little children. Because what you do as a child stays with you forever. So when you train a child, you really imprint it upon them. It really, it really becomes part of them. So it becomes part of their routine. It becomes part of their habit, part of their nature. It's so deeply imprinted that it becomes second, second nature. So it's my habit. Second, I don't even have to think about it. So there's no energy. There's no thought here. There's no lishma. There's no intention. There's no awareness. There's no godliness here. It's just habit. Like, a, like an animal that's trained. I'm just a trained, I'm a trained animal. I was trained well. And I'm conforming and I'm following. I'm a good follower. I'm a good boy, a good girl. I'm following and I'm doing everything that's expected. And that's it. So from this mitzvah, that's what Hashem is crying about. That their fear of me and their mitzvah, the mitzvah sanashem ulumada. It's done by rote. It's mechanical. There's no oomph. There's no energy. There's no excitement. There's, there's nothing. There's no lishma. It's not, it's not, there's no sense of godliness. I'm going to continue here yeah, on top of 554. It's applied. Four, it is impossible to serve God truly lishma without arousing one's natural fear and love at least by bringing them out of the concealment of the heart into revelation, at least in the mind and the latency of the heart. If one cannot arouse his natural love of God to the point where it is actually felt in the heart, he must try, as discussed before, to arouse it at least so that it be, it be felt in the conscious mind and in the substratum of the heart. Even this low-level arousal can produce a will and resolve to study the Torah and fulfill the mitzvot. Thus, resulting that divine service contains at least some degree the force and kavana of its natural law, since it was this law that created the resolve which he is now implementing. If, however, one does not produce even this minimum level of arousal, the love also, although naturally found in his heart, has no bearing on his divine service, and he cannot, therefore, do this service this much. That when a person does something, 
for someone else, there has to be a motivation. I love the person. And that's why I'm doing it. You ask me to do something. Why am I doing it? Because I love you. I have a relationship with you. You ask me to do it, so I'm doing it. There has to be at least, at least some conscious thought that I'm doing it for the sake of this person. But here, in the case of the child who grew up religious, who grew up Orthodox, who grew up religious, and is just, it's thoughtless, completely thoughtless. He doesn't have to think. He doesn't need to motivate himself to do it. It's so ingrained in him. It's so habitual. It feels so natural, he just does it. It's mechanical. That he doesn't even have to, he doesn't even need that minimal thought. Regularly, usually, you wouldn't do anything. If someone, you know, why am I doing this for you? I have to bring up on a conscious level, I'm doing this because I like you. I have a connection to you. You asked me to do it. Your wish, your wish is my command. I want to do it. I want to please you. There's some, some connection. When it comes to Judaism, however, you don't, even, you don't even need that to motivate you. We're not talking about the Baltruva, the one who came to it later in life as an adult. Dear, there has to be a tremendous consciousness of godliness to change your life around, to turn your whole life around, or a convert to change your whole life around, a genuine convert. Dear, God is everything. You're thinking about Him all day and all night. Every day is a struggle, and every day you're learning, and you're changing, and you're growing, and you're taking God seriously. We're talking about someone who grew up religious. From his youth, as he said, his parents drilled it in him. And he went to yeshiva, and he was, he was molded, and he was taught, and he was trained. It's so habitual, he doesn't, he doesn't even need to think about it. On the contrary, he would need to think about stopping. If he wanted to not do it, that would create a whole emotional turmoil in his life. That would create a whole intellectual crisis, an emotional crisis. To do the mitzvah, to conform, you don't need it. There's no emotional crisis, no intellectual crisis. You don't need any, any motivation. It's so habitual, it's so drilled in you. You just do it. And you may even feel like a burden. Nebuch, I have no choice. I have to do this. It's an obligation. What can you do? You have to pay income taxes. The government is going to get you if you don't. The government is more powerful than you. You don't mess with the government. So listen, I'm going to start up with God. What am I, a fool? <laughs> so you, you have to do what you have to do. But you do it, and that's about it. But it's so, there's no, there's no great inner, there's no inner life. There's nothing inner. There's nothing that stirs inside of you. There's nothing that's moved. There's no change. There's no awareness. There's nothing. You just go it. You just do it. You're just mechanical by road. You're just coasting along. So that's, there's no lishma. For just as one does not do something for his fellow to carry out his friend's will unless he loves him or fears him, so too it is impossible to act truly for God's sake solely in order to carry out his will. Unless he remembers and arouses his love and fear of God to some degree in his mind, thought, and latent level of his heart at least, if he cannot arouse these emotions openly in his heart. One who observes the mitzvot out of habit, however, lacking even this minimal arousal of love, cannot be described as serving God for his sake, even though his performance is impelled by no ulterior motive. That in order to do the mitzvah, the Shema properly, there has to be a godly thought. You have to be motivated. God, I'm doing this for you. I love you. 
I care about you. I care about your wishes. It has to be a thought. If you do a mitzvah, you're not even thinking about God. And you can go, days can go by, weeks can go by, months can go by, and you're doing so much, and yet you're not even thinking. God, I'm doing this for you. I love you. I care about you. I respect you. Your wish is my command. I'm in awe of you. I'm doing this for this. If you do a mitzvah without even that thought, we're not talking about this, this full-blown love in your heart, that your heart is, is, is on fire, is inflamed, or this awe of God, you feel the palpitations in your heart because you're standing in the presence of God, or you have this deep, profound understanding and meditation and reflection of godliness, or this deep spiritual experience of godliness, of egolessness, of connection with God. No, at least minimal, at least a thought. When you do a mitzvah, God, I'm putting on film because I love you, because you asked me to do this. I'm doing this for your sake. I'm studying Torah because you asked me to study Torah. It's your wisdom. I'm doing this for you. But can you imagine going through your life, your whole life, and not even once thinking about God? It's a pretty scary thought. But what else is this? It seems to be more the norm than not. The Rebbe once said, they made a moment of silence. Everybody was speaking about a moment of silence. There are some public schools here in New York, actually, that have implemented a moment of silence. The Rebbe said, you know, it would be a good suggestion. They should have a moment of silence in yeshivas also. <laughs> they should also think about God once in a while. Because <laughs> you can go through the whole yeshiva system, and you're learning, and it's all technical and mechanical, yet there's no soul. There's no awareness. There's not even one moment to stop and think, what's this all about? Well, what am I doing? What, what is being Jewish all about? It's a marriage, a relationship with Hashem. There's no connection. Not in a real way, in a real sense, to stop and think, God, I'm doing this for you, because I care about you, because I love you, because you asked me to do this. As the, uh, the Baal Shem Tev, they tell a story that the Baal Shem Tev once asked, who's going to be my partner in, in the world to come? So they showed him so-and-so. So he goes to travel, he's wondering to see who is going to be his partner in the world to come. So he comes. And he meets the most simple person, a sim- real simpleton. He asks if he can stay in his house. He wants to observe him. And maybe he has some hidden qualities. The only thing that he sees, and it's not hidden, is that he loves to eat. He eats and he eats and he eats and he's eating and he's eating. That's all he does all day and night. He's eating and he's... <laughs> I was very surprised. You know, why this is going to be his partner in the world to come. So he asked him, tell me, what do you, what do you eat so much? What, what's... He says, I'll tell you the truth. He says, once I was traveling as a child with my father. We were traveling through the forest. And we got held up by bandits. And as soon as I saw the bandits, my father sent me up the tree. Like, go hide in the tree. So they missed me. And I saw them tie my father. And they burned him to death, alive. And my father was so scrawny, he was such a scrawny Jew. He burnt in a second. And it burnt me up. He says, a Jew should burn like that? He says, if they burn me, I'm going to burn and burn and burn. <laughs> he says, don't look at the plots. <laughs> so, 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 he says, we'll meet again. Here was a Jew, he was eating, but what was the whole purpose of his eating? Every time he sat down to eat, what was his intention, what was his motivation? It was out of his love for Hashem. Hashem, God, your chosen people, 
a Jew should, should I'm going to be strong and I'm going to. So he injected everything that he, that he did, he injected a godly intent. So he ate, but his eating was godly. It wasn't about eating because he wanted to eat. He ate because it was his love for God. He says, God, I love you so much, I'm going to eat. It was so pure, it was so sincere, it was all. So how much worse when you do the mitzvah? You put on tefillin every morning. Do you stop and think, God, I'm doing this for you because you asked me to do this, I'm doing this. Well, you just do it. You don't even think. How many Jews just put on tefillin and don't even think for one moment what they're doing? Tefillin, every mitzvah, we just do it. What, what do I have to do today? <laughs> That's your approach? There's no lishma, there's no seriousness, there's no spirituality, there's no sense of God, there's no thought of God. Then that mitzvah is flat. That mitzvah doesn't go anywhere. It's very cold and very dry and very heavy. Furthermore, the arousal of love alone without the arousal of at least the lower level fear of God hidden in every Jewish heart is not called service, as will be explained later. Divine service connotes the relationship of a servant to his master, whom he serves chiefly out of fear, unlike a child who carries out his father's wishes mainly because he loves him. When one performs a mitzvah out of love of God alone, without fear of him, he is indeed acting for God's sake, but he is not serving. So this is a point he's going to elaborate later on, that there's two mitzvot. There's a mitzvah to love God, there's a mitzvah to fear God, to be in awe of God, but then there's a mitzvah to serve God. To serve like a soldier that has to serve, serve. A servant that serves his master. And if you just do the mitzvah out of love, it's not enough. Yes, you love God, but you're not serving God. Your relationship to God has to be in addition to the love that you have to have for God. But God is like your king. When the king is standing in front of you, there's a sense of God's presence. And your relationship to God has to be clear. There's, there's, there's a loving relationship. You feel very close to God. God loves you and you love him. But that's not enough. That's inadequate because you can love your best friend. You can love and you'll do what he wants you to do because you love him and you do a favor because he asks you to do something. You'll do it to him because you have this relationship with him. You love him. But if he asked you not to do something, so he asked me not to do something. He's my best friend. So I didn't listen to him. So what? But when the king asks you not to do something, it's a different relationship. You're not going to defy the king. There's a sense of awe. There's a sense of, this is the king. I'm his soldier. I'm his servant. How can I disobey the king? It's not even an option. So our relationship to God has to be both close and distant at the same time. On one hand, we're closer than close. God loves us, and we love God in return. We reciprocate that love. On the other hand, there's also a distance. God is transcendent. God is infinite. God is so beyond us that when you're standing in the presence of God, you're completely humbled. Me to God, it's like, there's no, what connection do I have to God? God is so beyond me. God is so, that I humble. That's why we wear the yarmulke. Yamukah is two words, Yarei Melaka, I'm afraid of God, I'm a fear of God. Because as brilliant as you are and as loving as you are, there's also a distance, a healthy distance. There's a healthy sense of awe. 
when you're standing in the presence of greatness, it, it puts you in place. It, puts you, it gives you a perspective, who you are and what your relationship to God is. So if God asks you to do something, how can I define it? How can I say no? And when he asks me to do something, the mitzvah that I do, also I have to, be, I have to serve God. I'm putting on the tefillin, you know, God, I'm putting on the tefillin because I love you. But I'm also putting on the tefillin because you're my king and you asked me to do this. And when a king has a right to ask his soldiers and to ask his servants to, to, what to do. So you have to accept that upon yourself. You have to accept upon yourself that God is my king. And I am his faithful and loyal servant. And the king has a right to command me. He has a right to ask me and to command me. A king doesn't ask, a king commands. A king doesn't call on the soldiers, says, will you please? He gives an order. And you do it. Here we have a marine. David can tell us, right? There's no, uh, they don't take polls there and they don't uh, ask you what your mood is. Well, I'm not in the mood today. Ask me tomorrow. I don't care your mood, you're not mood. An order is an order. The king asked you, you're a soldier, and you, and you, you, and you obey the order. So the foundation of, of a Jew's approach to God has to be that God is my king. God is my sovereign my king and he has a right to command me he has a right and I have a duty and an obligation to obey his commands very simple it's very simple to call him too and to to, to, to call Hashem to call him of course and ask uh, what we, we could not right you know for, for, for blessing the, the, oh absolutely absolutely it's absolutely fundamental the direct uh, contact direct contact we, so we love God. We have a relationship with God. God is my father, and he's also my king. That's what we say, Avinu Malkeinu. My father, my king. It's like that, that famous analogy. It was this, uh, this family, and he had to, he worked as a forest ranger. So he took his family and moved in the middle of nowhere. So he had to do homeschooling. So the father was the teacher and the principal. And the kids were very wild. Just like they were at home, they were wild. When it was school time, they were also wild. The father couldn't, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't discipline them. So he sits down with his children and says, listen, during school hours, I'm not your father. I'm your teacher. I'm going to treat you like strangers. Don't come crying to me. I'm not going to show you any favoritism, no mercy. I'm going to teach you. I will treat you exactly the way I would, I would treat strangers. The kids try to act wild. They see, no, no, the father is strict. There's no games. No more games. I'm your, ma- I'm your master. I'm your teacher. And I'm gonna, he was very strict with them. And the kids felt he was a little too strict. And they cried, Daddy, help us. I'm sorry. Talking to the wall. Right now, I'm your principal. I'm your teacher. The kids were very wise. So they come home that night. At home, the father's a father. So they turn to the father. He says, Daddy... Do us a favor. Have a word with our principal. <laughs> Maybe he can, have a little, he can have a little mercy on us. That's when we turn to Hashem. We have that relationship to God. He's our Father. We can pour our heart out to Him. We can request. We can ask. We love Him. But on the other hand, God is also our, our King. God is our Master. Do your obedient. Do you. We're soldiers. We're loyal and faithful servants. You don't have to obey. You have to do and we do it simultaneously. So when you do a mitzvah, you have to think to yourself. And that's the blessing that we make. Every mitzvah we make a blessing. Baruch atah Hashem Elokeinu Melech. 
Our relationship is God is king. God is my king and he's standing right in front of me. My commanding over the commander-in-chief. Can you imagine if the commander-in-chief is standing right in front of you? The commander-in-chief is standing right in front of me, right this moment, and looking, looking at me, looking in my eyes, looking in my heart. Am I serving him? How faithful are you? How loyal are you? Are you a good servant? Can you imagine the awe you would feel if you really felt God's presence at this moment right in front of you? Forget about misbehaving. That, that, that's an impossibility. But doing the mitzvah, I'm doing it because you commanded me. And it's my duty. And because I love you. Both. I'm a child and I'm a servant. Avinu, Malkeinu, both, both together. Simultaneously. And that's why the blessing we say, it's very strange. If you know Hebrew, Every blessing we start out, Baruch Atah, blessed are you. Like, you is direct. Like I'm talking to you directly. Blessed are you. Hashem Elokeinu, God our God. So here we're talking person to person, and suddenly we switch to third person. And we're talking about someone else. Here God is present. I'm talking to you. Baruch Atah, blessed are you, direct. All of a sudden we switch. God who is our God. What do you mean God who is our God? As if you're talking about God who is elsewhere or someone else. I'm talking to God. You should have said, you who are my God. No, God who is our God. And the answer is, because first, a Jew gets close to God. You feel a love. Your heart is consumed with a love to God. You feel close. You feel warm. You're warmed by God's love for you and God's care and concern for you, personally, individually, and He loves you unconditionally. And that warms your heart, and your heart reciprocates, and there's a person-to-person relationship between you and God. Baruch God, I love you. But then, as you get closer to God, suddenly you realize, Melech, God is king. God is infinite. God is so transcendent. I and God, what's the connection? Suddenly, you step back. You see the gulf, the gap, the distance between you and God is so infinite that you're in awe. You can't talk to God directly. You're talking about a third person, and God is beyond you. Melech, So now, out of sense of duty, I'm going to do this mitzvah. So the mitzvah is motivated by two. By both the love and the sense of awe. By the love and the sense of service. So I'm serving God by doing the mitzvah. But if I do a mitzvah, could you imagine doing a mitzvah without a sense of love? Without even a thought that I love God. Without even a thought that I'm serving God. If you just do the mitzvah mechanically and by rote, there's no energy. It's nothing. And most people do mitzvah that way. There's no, not even a thought of God. I'm not thinking about God, let alone think that I love God. I'm putting on tefillin on God because I love you. I'm putting on tefillin because you're my king and you're standing here and you're asking me to do it. So I'm doing it. I'm serving you by putting on tefillin. Every mitzvah you do, you're serving God. I'm studying Torah. I'm serving you by studying Torah. I'm serving you by putting on tefillin. I'm serving you by lighting a Shabbat candle. I'm serving you any mitzvah and all the mitzvah. But if there's no thought whatsoever... Even when a human being asks you to do so, you're doing it because you're thinking about it. I'm doing it because he's my friend. He asked me to do it, so I'm doing it. But when it comes to God, we don't even have that. We just do it because we're used to it, because we coast along, because this is what's expected of us, because we're conformists. This is no lishma. There's no energy. This mitzvah is flat. This mitzvah is going nowhere. This mitzvah is not elevating you, and it's not being elevated. And that's the biggest exile, the deepest exile. So, of course, the Torah tells us that even a Jew who's doing a mitzvah without any kavlash nevertheless should do the mitzvah. No one is suggesting that unless you do the mitzvah with the proper intent, don't do the mitzvah. Don't do the right thing. God forbid, because you have to do the mitzvah. Because when you have the mitzvah, you have the treasure. You have the divine essence. 
which only comes about through the mitzvah, not through the meditation, not through the love, not through the, the philosophy, and not through the spirituality, the high levels of consciousness, the thought, the mitzvah, the act, that's where you have the essence. That's the treasure. So even though the treasure is hidden and locked up and concealed and under reinforced concrete, you can't even access it because you're not doing the mitzvah, you're not revealing, there's no revelation of godliness. But nevertheless, you have the treasure. And once you have the treasure, later on you can always, we'll learn next week, we'll conclude next week, we'll conclude the chapter next week. Later on you can always go back. Once you have the treasure, you can always go and unlock the treasure. You can always go and polish it. So as long as you have it, the deed is what matters most. Do the mitzvah, study the Torah, even though you're not doing it in a refined way, you're doing it in a very coarse way, it's just mechanical, it's by rote, it's just going through the motions. Do the deed. Get the deed done. And you have no appreciation of what you're doing, and you have zero appreciation of what you're doing. And it's shameful, and the mitzvah is an exile, and God is an exile, and everyone is crying. But the bottom line is, the riches you have. You're amassing the fortune. You're amassing the treasures. The other part, the light, you can always turn on later. You can always appreciate, you can always learn, acquire appreciation of what you've already accomplished. But if you don't accomplish it, if you don't do the mitzvah, and later, and then you're turned on, it's too late, you haven't done the mitzvah. So the substance, the, the, the treasure, the deed itself is the main event, that's the principle, but it's not enough. You also have to do the mitzvah with l'shma, the proper intention. The Rebbe would always remind us that we are a unique generation. There's never been a generation like ours, and there never will be. We are the transitional generation, the last generation of Gullahs, of exile, and we will be the first generation of Gaula, of redemption. What an awesome privilege we have, and what a sacred responsibility we carry on our shoulders. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to bring the curtain down on the Golas once and for all? Well, Mashiach himself gave the secret away in his famous encounter with the Baal Shem Tev. He tells the Baal Shem Tev that when your wellsprings and the teachings of Hasidus will spread to every corner of the world, then and only then will Mashiach come. And therefore the Alter Rebbe sacrificed his life to carry out this directive to the Baal Shem Tev by writing and publishing the Tanya. And all the Rebbe's sacrificed themselves to publicize and to expound on the teachings of the Tan. And the Rebbe, the seventh, the Shabbos of all the Rebbe's, published over 6,000 Tanyas, literally in every city of the world. And now, for the first time in history, through LessonsInTanya.com, Tanya in depth is available and accessible. 24-6, to hundreds of thousands, Jews as well as non-Jews, in dozens of countries all around the world. Now that you've had the personal experience and the pleasure to study the Tanya, we ask you to please partner with us to make the entire Tanya available and easily accessible to each and every Jew and to the entire world. Please help turn the wish of Mashiach, the dream of the Alter Rebbe, and the vision of the Rebbe into a reality. On behalf of all of us here at LessonsInTanya.com, thank you for listening. Thank you for caring.
and a special thank you for the good deed that you're about to do. In honor of your tzedakah, we will merit the coming of Mashiach now, when we'll learn Tanya from the Alter Rebbe himself. Thank you.